This podcast is sponsored by Bovida Humidity Packs. Bovida Packs are meant to be stored with your cannabis flower. This helps control the relative humidity inside your jar, which is going to control the cannabinoid and terpene profile of your flower over time, so you'll never have to experience dry, crusty nugs. You may have seen Bovida Packs in the weed bags you buy from the dispensary with your flower, but you can also purchase these for your home use. I highly encourage that you do, especially if you buy your flower in bulk. The packs come in a variety of sizes depending on how much bud you have at home. They are incredibly useful and affordable, and I noticed a huge difference when I started using these, and now I could never go back. I also want to note that every single Bovida employee that I have spoken with has been incredibly happy working at this company, and I have so much respect for them for being an ethical employer and helping fund education like this podcast. If you want to purchase some Bovida packs, the links will be available in the show notes of this episode. Welcome to the Bioactive Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Riley Kirk. This is episode eight, all about cannabis, pregnancy, and breastfeeding. Before we get started on this episode with our special guest, Megan, who is a cannabis nurse and educator, I want to review some of the previous research into cannabis use during pregnancy and breastfeeding, just to make sure we get as much on the table as possible before we start the general conversation. Cannabis is becoming increasingly popular as a self-medication during pregnancy and breastfeeding as more states begin to legalize recreational cannabis and it becomes more accessible. We know people are using cannabis and instead of just saying, don't do it, uh, we're going to provide information for the best way to prevent harm to yourself and your baby during this time if this is something that you choose to do. The research is legitimately all over the place for both cannabis while pregnant and cannabis while breastfeeding. Researching pregnant women using cannabis is unethical in control settings, and most of the data is gathered via survey data or self-reported cannabis use, which often people are afraid to tell the truth when we're gathering data in this way, which I don't blame them at all for. There are almost always confounding variables such as the use of other substances during these studies and extreme differences in dose and consumption method of cannabis during this time. It's recommended that if you're not already a cannabis user and if you're not suffering from something like hyperemesis gravidarum and don't have a medical reason to use cannabis during this time in your life, it's generally recommended that you abstain from cannabis use altogether. I'm going to say this a billion times during this episode, but this is not medical advice in this episode. This is just talking about the science and some personal opinions on harm reduction. With mild cases, mild cases of nausea or vomiting, um, many people are recommended to try to use safe natural products such as ginger or the strychnine tree called Nux Vomica or 
even taking supplements like vitamin B6 with the assistance of an herbalist or a doctor. Cannabis has a long history of being an aid in childbirth, to aid in the pain for the mother with no documented adverse effects. And these are kind of traditional uses, so we may not be monitoring the same endpoints that we're currently monitoring with modern research. There's a variety of reasons why someone may want to use cannabis as the potential benefits to using the plant may outweigh the risks of other things. We just discussed hyperemesis gravidarum. This is a great example because some mothers may not be comfortable to the prescriptions that they may be offered as an alternative because everything has risks when you use it during pregnancy. If the mother is under extreme levels of stress, either physically or emotionally, this is another great reason. Reason because maternal stress has been linked to many adverse outcomes like preterm birth, issues with neurocognition, behavioral disorders, issues with the endocrine system, and motor development aberrations in the child. And many of the alternative treatments to chronic stress are things like pharmaceutical drugs like SSRIs, benzodiazepines, etc., which in my opinion are likely more harmful than the low doses of cannabis. There's also a very, very wide group of people who are already using medical cannabis and their patients in medical programs in various states or they're self-medicating for a reason to use medical cannabis for. It would be extremely difficult and stressful on their body if this is the only medicine that they have used that have worked for them for a specific condition to abruptly stop using that medicine and now have to deal with the both physical and emotional stress of being pregnant on top of the other conditions that they're using medical cannabis for. Also, many people um, are addicted or using things like opioids or other pharmaceutical drugs that as they try to wean off of these substances during their pregnancy, they may turn to using some medical cannabis to help with the withdrawal symptoms um, and that may be for a short amount of time or for a long amount of time, but we know that the dependency on substances like opioids during pregnancy have a clear association with neonatal abstinence syndrome. The 2017 National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine performed a review on all the available data collected on cannabis and pregnancy and reached some of the following conclusions. One, there is limited evidence of any statistical association between maternal cannabis smoking and pregnancy complications to the mother. Two, there is substantial evidence for a association between maternal cannabis smoking and lower birth weight of the child. We're going to talk about this more in a second. Three, there is insufficient evidence of an association between maternal cannabis smoking and later outcomes in offspring like sudden infant death syndrome, cognition issues, academic achievements, and later substance use or abuse disorders. So let's focus on the association of cannabis and a lower birth weight for a minute. It's actually really not likely that cannabis itself is causing this association. It's actually the act of smoking that's causing this association. The changes in birth weight are consistent with exposure to any smoke. This is whether it's from cannabis or other commonly smoked things like cigarettes or maybe something else that people are smoking. When researchers adjusted the data for 
any smoking exposure and not just for cannabis smoking exposure, there was no association with lower birth weight of newborns and cannabis specifically. Smoking is not recommended as a consumption method while pregnant. We will talk about some other methods of consumption that may offer less harm later in this episode. As for the health of the newborn, there has been a association with a higher rate of uh, neonatal intensive care unit admissions uh, for mothers who are using cannabis. But all evidence for this suggests that this is a product of mandatory admission to the NICU when mothers fail a toxicology screening test. This is really, really messed up and needs to be changed immediately as it prevents the bond of a new mother, a newborn, and breastfeeding. And we should not be treating new mothers this way um, in hospital settings or anywhere. There's still limited data on exactly how much of the THC that the mother is ingesting can actually cross the placenta. Although we know it is able to readily enter the placenta, but we're not really sure as far as compared to maternal exposure. What we do know is that the endocannabinoid system is critical for development of a healthy baby and a healthy brain. And what we want to do is we want to limit the exposure of THC. Although we don't have human data for this, animal models suggest that exposure of a fetus to moderate levels of THC are consistent with potentially developing symptoms similar to anxiety. As far as other uh, neurological conditions such as autism, ADHD, and other brain states, we don't have enough data on these uh, to date to make any conclusions. If you think there's limited data on THC use during pregnancy, there's even more limited data on CBD use during pregnancy, especially in human subjects. One study evaluating animal models found moderate to high levels of CBD resulted in lower levels of norepinephrine, uh, dopamine, and serotonin, specifically in the male offspring. Um, but the same effect was not seen with THC exposure. The most common reason that pregnant women are using cannabis seems to be for hyperemesis gravidarum or HG, PTSD, and chronic pain, which all of these conditions are difficult to treat or may be treatment resistant, but do respond very well to cannabis. This is likely due to its effect on the endocannabinoid system and as the system being a main player in the pathology of these conditions. In one study with women with HG who use cannabis to treat nausea, 37 out of 40 participants considered cannabis to be extremely effective or effective at controlling their symptoms of HG. All right, let's also touch on the research with cannabis and breast milk. Breast milk is a beautiful concoction of hundreds of unique substances that can sustain life. Included in this mixture are endocannabinoids, the ones that our own body makes. These endocannabinoids can help the newborn develop the latch response to the mother and assist in breastfeeding. It is important to be cognizant that cannabinoids produced by the plant, like THC, are fat soluble and they will make their way into breast milk if you are using cannabis regularly. So let's talk about how much of say, THC can actually enter breast milk. And for this, we actually do have some data on it. 
For mothers who inhaled 100 milligrams of cannabis at 23% THC, the authors calculated that the breastfed infants would receive 2.5% of the mother's dose of THC per kilogram of body weight. Now, I'm obviously not going to make you guys uh, do math. So just for how relevant these numbers are, what the authors estimated the daily infant dose would be is about 8 micrograms per kilogram per day. And say your baby weighs uh, 10 pounds, that's about 4.5 kilograms. So that would be 36 micrograms per day that that infant would be exposed to. The authors also found that the concentration in the breast milk peaked at one hour and receded over the next four hours. So again, it's advised to use as little as possible, although I genuinely don't think it's necessary to pump and dump. Uh, instead, I think it would make sense to try to use cannabis after breastfeeding or to dilute breast milk with potentially low levels of THC with some other breast milk that may have none in it to reduce those levels further. One study found that THC levels in breast milk was average about 10 nanograms per milliliter after six days with the mom stopping using cannabis. And to compare, the level of our body's own endocannabinoids in breast milk is about 200 nanograms per milliliter. So 10 nanograms per mil is extremely low. It is still incredibly variable what the legal landscape is like for using cannabis while pregnant or breastfeeding in states with recreational cannabis and states without recreational cannabis. I would really love to hear about your personal experience with this, and if you're willing and you're comfortable sharing in any way, please message me on the Bioactive Podcast Instagram, and if you work in a hospital, specifically a labor and delivery uh, section of the hospital, I definitely want to hear from you. Be careful who you talk about this with. I'm genuinely not sure what the current status of drug testing mothers is in the country, but I would definitely make sure you trust the people that you share this information with. With that being said, I am not a mother, but if I was going through something like HG during pregnancy, I would absolutely turn to cannabis as my first source of medicine as I trust it with my health much more than any medication on planet Earth. And I genuinely think that in many cases, the use of cannabis in low doses can be used as a harm reduction mechanism versus other alternative treatments or extreme stress on the mother. And on that note, Let's dive into this episode. And today uh, we have an awesome guest and an awesome topic. So we have Megan Bang, uh, or Trusted Canoners on social media, TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn, all of the things, and Facebook. Um, and the topic today is cannabis and pregnancy. So you have, I mean, you are a registered nurse, which is so important, but you also have some experience working uh, with labor and delivery and like with pregnant women. Um, so if you want to just give like a little more of a background on, you know, what you do currently and, you know, what you have done in the past and we'll go from there. All right. All right. Perfect. So yeah, my name is Megan Bang. I've been a registered nurse for 10, 11 years, something like that. Um, I started my career at Johns Hopkins working bone marrow transplant and oncology and then moved to labor and delivery while I was there. And then, um, I moved to the West Coast six years ago now and did labor and delivery 
travel nursing and then I switched to home hospice and now I own my own business as a cannabis nurse. So right now I teach people how to use cannabis as medicine and we have microdosing programs as well. Um, so yeah, with labor and delivery, I did uh, two, three years of L&D um, and that was well before my time of like knowing really anything besides, you know, propaganda on cannabis. And I was, uh, I had moved to California right around the time of legalization 2018 when they went, um, I think it was 2016 or something, but it was still early. Um, so yeah, cannabis wasn't very prominent in my practice at that time. Um, but now I think it's definitely more like it's, it's out there. We have people creating content and putting it out there about their use in pregnancy. Yeah, I mean, even back when you were an L&D nurse, was this something that came up a lot, even before there was a legal infrastructure and, you know, it was more open conversations about it? Um, there were not open conversations. This is what we did when I worked Hopkins, is we drug tested everybody um, on admission. And if they came up positive for THC, we would not let the moms breastfeed because we were told that... Um, it was passed through the milk and it was slow brain development. And looking back, I want to like scratch my eyeballs out because like that was such a detrimental practice. Like just because it's in the urine does not mean that it's going through the breast milk. And even if it is going through the breast milk, you know, we have to look at the risks versus benefits. And we know that breastfeeding can help with like everything with babies. So denying mothers that right was so unethical looking back right and like across the board too like with like no except expect exceptions not expectations on on that rule like that's very harmful um and as you're saying too like cannabis stays in your body and you can test positive like 30 to 60 days after you stop using cannabis so even you know i one of the questions we got was um you know if I am a heavy cannabis user and I just find out that I'm pregnant. Should I, you know, immediately stop using cannabis? And I think I think something we'll talk about during this episode is like the stress on the mother and how that could be a factor as well. So, I mean, whenever somebody's either taking a tolerance break or stopping using cannabis or even starting using cannabis, I always recommend people taper, taper on, taper off. So like if you are a heavy cannabis user and you find out you're pregnant, you know, maybe over the next week or two, slowly start decreasing the amount of cannabis you're using so it's less stressful on you as the mother um, so that Mm -hmm. that can be safer for the child as well. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And then, you know, what, what else can you do to supplement your ECS while it's, you know, getting back into balance, you know, what else can you do? So I think that's that's a great point. Yeah. yeah. So things like, I mean, we talk about like, like meditation a lot or just general exercise or other things that just kind of bring you joy. But I think a, a normal, nice kind of place to start here maybe is breastfeeding because that's kind <laughs> of, uh, you, you just brought that up. And well, first of all, our body produces our endogenous cannabinoid molecules, right? Our endocannabinoids, endocannabinoids, whatever you want to call them. Our body produces them and they are vital for a lot of things, including the latch response of new babies to their mother. That's part of what helps them latch on to the nipple and start feeding. So they are very, very important. 
And as you're talking about the levels of cannabis, if you're if you're smoking, if you're consuming cannabis in any way, the levels that are actually reaching the breast milk are quite small. I know you did a TikTok about this. Mm-hmm. Would you mind kind of talking about what levels we're, we're, we're really seeing that actually get into the breast milk? Right, right. Such a great question. So there have been... Um, a few studies on this. Um, they looked at like regular cannabis users and um, it's been a couple of weeks since I've looked at it. So um, it's such a small percentage that goes through, but basically in regular cannabis users, the babies got like less than 0.02 milligrams, I think is the number. Um, yeah. In, I think you said like 0.006 total... was like the number that actually was like detected milligrams yeah. detected in the breast yeah. milk. Right. Right. Um, Like in a 24 hour period. And that's and that's such a really that's a very small amount. However, these moms, this is a little bit earlier. So these moms were smoking flour. They were not doing concentrates. And I think that's an important point to talk about. Yeah. Let's talk about that. So, I mean, the main concern here is THC, right? The main concern mm-hmm. is THC, not really these other compounds. Actually, I don't even think CBD has been studied at all um, for for pregnancy or even breastfeeding. There's been like no studies on it. Um, but yeah. the main concern is THC because it does bind to the CB1 receptor and that could, you know, potentially cause some effects. I think a, a big part of like the harm reduction topic here is like if you are going to use cannabis, um, it really does... You should really try to aim to use the least amount of THC possible for the outcomes that you're looking for. So, I mean, I will preface this. I mean, first, I need to say none of this in this podcast is medical advice, um, right. just to you know save us both here. Nothing is medical advice. But essentially, if you are using cannabis, if you have terrible nausea, you're vomiting all the time, you're really sick, um, you have some sort of other condition, whether it's chronic pain or fibromyalgia, something that you only find relief from cannabis from, you should really try to use the smallest amount of THC possible to get the endpoints that you're looking for and really like titrating lower and lower to get those effects. I would really not condone um, recreational use of cannabis. If you're just, you know, smoking to smoke um, because you, you love it, you know, I think pregnancy probably is the wrong time to continue that. But there's so many medical patients that do really find the benefits of cannabis while they're pregnant. And that's the reason we're having this conversation. Like the FDA is always going to publish things on their website that's as if we're all living in a bubble and as if we're all the same exact person, right? So we're, you can go to the FDA website if you want that information. We're trying to give a patient-centric opinion on cannabis and pregnancy here because there is a lot of nuance. It's really... There's, the human experience is so much more than just living in a bubble and either using THC or not using THC. And I think that's so important to remember that even, I mean, we just talked about stress. Stress alone can be so terrible for pregnancy and mm-hmm. it has, you know, eliminated a lot of pregnancies, unfortunately. And if we can reduce the levels of stress, um, that is a benefit to using cannabis as well. Yeah, exactly. I, I completely agree. And if we're looking at pregnancy, you know, I completely agree that uh, like recreational use, if we're using just to using, just to be using just like alcohol, maybe it's not the best idea. Um, but for moms who are going through HG or hyperemesis graviderm, you know, this is considered like a maternal health crisis that is not, it's not addressed and providers are not 
well educated on it. And so moms are being admitted to the hospital on a weekly basis with dehydration. They're like, some of their babies are like being stillborn. Moms should not be losing weight in like the second and third trimesters. And moms with HG like are losing weight throughout their entire pregnancy. And that's like, and that puts extra stress on the fetus and, you know, that people are being admitted like with low fluid levels. And then, you know, if it's a low fluid level, your water breaks, like oftentimes that's an emergency C-section. Yeah. That's so important bringing up HG because that is probably the number one reason why people do use cannabis during Mm -hmm. pregnancy. And HG is just, it's just constant like vomiting. Like you can't get away from being sick when, uh, when you are experiencing pregnancy and it can be extremely debilitating. Somebody just commented on the TikTok I posted asking for questions to talk about during this interview. And, you know, she said, I lost 40 pounds when I was, when I was pregnant. And like, that is not healthy, especially when those, like those fat reserves are so important and like your fat signaling is so important uh, during pregnancy that can absolutely have adverse effects on a developing fetus. So again, it's really thinking about the, the patient centric view of this and as a harm reduction standpoint, what's more harmful losing 50 pounds and vomiting 24 seven or like microdosing THC and not having those effects. Right. Right. And not having to go to the hospital every week. Um, you know, it's just, yeah, it, it's wild that it's so stigmatized that, you know, even, even ACOG, I just looked at American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, their guidelines yesterday, and they are so ancient. They do not say cannabis once they use marijuana and they say that there are adverse effects, but they say, there may be a decrease in birth weight. There may be like, it could be linked to stillbirth, but that's like nowhere in the evidence that I could find that cannabis use is associated with stillbirth. And I think we should talk about that. Let's talk about like the existing evidence that we have on cannabis and pregnancy. And first of all, it's shit. Like, (laughs) and it's all over the place. It's all over the place. It is definitely all over the place. Yeah. And the long-term studies that we have, they can't, like a lot of these moms were poly substance users. So they're using like cigarettes and alcohol. So they can't, they can't pick out that cannabis was the only thing linked to this outcome. Right. But we have that evidence for HG. We have that evidence for Tylenol. We have that evidence for maternal stress in pregnancy, but we do not have like that conclusive evidence for cannabis during pregnancy. Right. And I, I just want, like, if the evidence was that clear, we would know it. Like, just saying. Like, because, we would I mean, know. <laughs> like, look at alcohol and look at fetal alcohol syndrome, right? Like, we know that alcohol contributes to adverse effects during pregnancy, but mm-hmm. still, physicians would recommend mothers have, you know, one glass of wine to reduce stress during pregnancy for a really, really long time, even though we knew about fetal alcohol syndrome and the adverse effects from that. So there's obviously something with cannabis and its current legal status and how, you know, how all the issues with propaganda and and the thoughts of cannabis and the legal status that contribute to the feelings about cannabis during pregnancy. 
because we see this completely contradicting story with alcohol and alcohol is just part of our culture. So it's just kind of encouraged no matter what. And that and that's a huge problem. And I do want to keep talking about the, the published research. So, I mean, one of the things you'll hear talked about all the time is a lowered birth weight. And it's really like really not substantially lower and as you're saying like there has been to my knowledge no completely controlled studies on cannabis and pregnancy um so well we'll talk about the issues with research too there's too much to talk about but anyway and then um potential neurological development too and this really is not controlled at all um but it is important to note that yeah, your your endocannabinoid system, your ECS, it is involved in every other process in your body, all of the different neurological functions in the developing fetus, right? So we really don't want to expose cannabis to a developing fetus the least amount possible because it can affect um, neurological development at high doses, or at least that's what the evidence suggests from a lot of like mouse studies, rat studies, and if you human studies that again really aren't controlled um but as you're saying there's also this um this kind of large boat of research on premature birth premature birth placental abruption small infant size stillbirth and newborns needing intensive care that people cite all the time but i do not think we have substantial evidence here like at all and i think you know, a lot of that data is taken from mouse studies in the 1980s. And I think we really need to reevaluate this data and and try to look at it from a, a more unbiased standpoint. Um, and I will also note that all these studies like we really don't know because nobody's honest about their cannabis use during pregnancy mm -hmm. Because everybody's worried that the government's going to take their child away, which right. is completely rational. And I would also be scared um, of that. But let's let's talk about the research first and then we'll talk about the the other issues with studying yeah. Um, yeah. this kind of stuff. Right. So there have been like a few large cohort studies like from like the 70s and 80s where they have followed long, you know, the children long term. I would say like in, in order to study, you have to study it at like an epidemiological level so that you can actually pinpoint who used cannabis and then draw conclusions based on cannabis only. However, these studies were, I don't remember the numbers, maybe hundreds, maybe like a in the low thousands, if that. I don't think when you're looking at a decade or two over time, I don't think that that's big enough to draw the conclusions based on cannabis use alone especially when the moms had admitted to other substances. There was that Jamaica study where they concluded, I think that there like was no difference in childhood outcomes. Um, and that was a pretty like significant and profound study. Um, and that may be like the, the best research that we have, the most um, comprehensive research that right. we have right now. I was just going to mention that too, that the fact that we, we have studies that also say that there are are no substantial differences uh, with mothers who use cannabis and those who didn't. Mm -hmm. So when, right. when we say the research is literally all over the place, it is all over the place. And all of them do have limitations and are often funded by institutions that are definitely looking at it, looking for negative effects, right? right. And I'm not saying that there are no negative effects of using cannabis during pregnancy, right? I'm definitely not saying that. Um, but what I am saying is like, we, we need better research for this and we need research that can really focus on it from a harm reduction standpoint, because a lot of mothers 
don't want to take pharmaceuticals when they're feeling mm -hmm. very nauseous and they, they don't trust pharmaceutical medications, which I don't blame them at all. And they would rather mm -hmm. use a natural product that has been documented as one of the best ways to relieve nausea out of any other pharmaceutical or natural product right. that exists. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of moms are prescribed like Zofran is one. Zofran has like documented and published evidence on, um, I haven't looked at it, but I know that it exists on childhood outcomes or neonatal outcomes on pregnancy with moms who use Zofran. Um, and there are other medications too. Like, um, I think they, they probably give like Phenergan, um, they give, I know Diclegis is one that's just like Unisom and vitamin B6. So I think that's a relatively safe medication, but sometimes they don't work, especially for these HG moms. And I think we do have to look at, we can't ignore the historical data that like pregnancy or cannabis has been used for millennia in pregnancy. And, yeah. um, you know, I think that we are a somewhat, you know, mentally stable, well, some more than others human race when it has been used for that long. Um, <laughs> uh, I digress. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, but yeah, there are like other pharmaceuticals, like they either don't work or like moms don't want to use them. So they would prefer something more natural. So we can't, so then let's help them use it correctly. Let's direct them towards something like a dry herb vaporizer instead of smoking or, you know, if they need flour, if they're going to smoke, smoke a joint and not a dab. Yeah. So. Let's, let's talk about consumption methods. I think that's um, yeah. really important. And so I think I saw some, something that you kind of put out that said something about how you would think dryer vaping might be mm -hmm. the best method. And I would agree with that for a few different reasons. One, if you are dealing with something like HG, you need something to act really fast, which is something like smoking or vaping. Um, mm -hmm. But, and you also like, you can't take an edible. You can't you can't ingest something when you're right. feeling that nauseous. Any like I get migraines where I get really, really, really sick. And even I've I have vomited up Zofran. I've vomited I've I've puked everything up. Like you you can't. You can't take mm -hmm. um, right. a lot of medications that you have to swallow or even that dissolve in your mouth. Like they're gonna make you more sick. So mm -hmm. that's something really important to remember. And you need those rapid effects. It's going to rapidly be absorbed in your lungs and go to your brain, which is drier vaping and smoking. So in general, smoking is not thought of as healthy because mm -hmm. you have the, the other compounds that are produced during smoking. Um, so and it, it it can be a little heavy hitting, too, um, if you were to smoke a, a full THC joint. Right. Um, whereas I think drier vapes, you have the the option to put just a little bit of flour in um, and you can still feel those effects immediately. You don't have those other compounds being produced as byproducts during the smoking process. So it's thought of as being, you know, a little bit healthier. Um, and And I agree with that. But I mean, even looking from... From the perspective, if you were able to swallow an edible and you were able to, um, you know, hold that down, if you didn't have mm -hmm. HD, maybe you had something else. Just the way we metabolize edibles, how it goes from THC to 11-hydroxy-THC, mm -hmm. which is thought mm -hmm. to be a little bit more potent than regular THC, and then it converts to a different molecule 
called Nor um, Carboxy THC. Not a sexy name, whatever. Um, but but that 11 hydroxy is circulating in the system for quite a long time, like hours. It's circulating in your system, and if it's circulating in your blood, that means it's going to reach the placenta and could have you know access to the developing fetus. Whereas smoking or vaping. Yeah, that THC hits your brain like immediately, but then you actually have the inactive metabolite, the norcarboxy metabolite that lasts a lot longer in your body, not the 11-hydroxy THC. Mm -hmm. So you have less psychoactive metabolites circulating in your body for a shorter amount of time. And I think that's important when thinking of the amount of time that you're exposing your body to THC. And again, thinking of a harm reduction standpoint, like really, right. really low levels. If you can if you can smoke or vape the absolute smallest amount with the least amount of THC, um, I think that would probably be the the best method going forward. Yep. But I mean what I know you kind of agree with this, but is, is it yeah. for the same reasons yeah. or <laughs> I com I completely agree. And this is like outside of pregnancy too, that like dry herb vaping is like the easiest on your lungs. You get the terpenes. It's like one of the the yeah. only inhalation methods where you get the benefit of the terpenes. Um, you know, and you're smoking like a lower concentrate. Um and I think that yeah, when you're taking an edible it converts to eleven hydroxy. And I've heard I've heard both of these. So I'm wondering what your what your take is. Is it that 11-hydroxy more easily crosses the, bl the blood-brain barrier or it has a stronger affinity as CB1? I, I've heard both. And the research, like, it was done, like, one time, like, 30 years ago and never revisited. So, yeah. so I don't know, um, you know, how true that is. Um, but either way, um, it is we know thought it's more to potent. be more potent, yeah, in one way or another. Right, right. Yeah. And I think that when I... When I think of pregnancy and, you know, fetal exposure to THC, I think of like children and their exposure and adolescents and their exposure. So we know that we, that there can potentially be adverse outcomes when children and adolescents are exposed at high doses for long periods of time. So you can't tell me that a fetus being exposed for high amounts for a long time may not have adverse outcomes. And that's why I don't recommend dabs or concentrates because like, how would that, especially in a developing fetus, we need to, if it's the same in like adolescents and children, it's gotta be somewhat similar in, in a developing fetus that there could be changes in the brain that, that we would see. I, I mean, I agree. And like, if you are someone who only reacts well to dabs and like, that's all you've ever done ever, like literally microdosing dabs, maybe, I don't know. Like, but, but, but dabs or concentrates as, as the name implies are concentrated products. So usually mm -hmm. the THC percentage is like 80, 90% compared to flour, which is like, you know, 15 to 30%. So you have significantly uh, less THC in flour. So I do find it to be safer, especially in these very um, volatile times of your life where you need to be super, yeah. super careful. You know, another, another area that has no research on, so let me put that out into the world. This has no research on it. This is just me talking. Um, yeah. So first, THCA, the one that the plant makes, right? So it's in its mm -hmm. acidic form. It 
is not psychoactive. It does not make you feel high. There is actually a published paper that THCA can help with nausea and vomiting, um, but it's not psychoactive. So you're not going to get high. It's really not binding to that CB1 receptor very well if it's binding at all, but could still potentially help with nausea and vomiting. And just because I studied this in grad school, I know I based on the structure of that molecule, I think it would cross the placenta and the blood brain barrier a lot more difficult. Like it would not cross as much uh, because mm-hmm. it has that acid group on it. And I think this is an area of research that we, we need more research on because potentially THCA could give people that benefit of feeling less nauseous, being able to function, being mm-hmm. able to like live their life, but not having that psychoactivity and not exposing the fetus to THC, which binds to that CB1 receptor and could potentially have adverse effects down the line. So that's somewhere I want to see research. If anyone listening to this podcast has money or avenues for research, like (laughs) write that down. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think that THCA is an interesting one because it's so unstable. A lot of, uh, you know, Bonnie Goldstein will talk about, uh, or other people talk about acids for seizure management. Um, and in Bonnie Goldstein's book, she'll say like, it's not supposed to cross a blood band barrier, but how does it help so well with seizures then if it doesn't, but also it's so unstable. So we don't have a good gauge of how much is converting prior to ingestion, ingestion, while ingestion, ingesting, I can't talk, but mm-hmm. yeah, I think that that's a good one. And also I have heard that like CBDA has like, um, uh, one of the receptors like binds like a thousand times stronger than CBD. So CBDA can help with nausea as well. Right. All right. Just a couple notes here. One, uh, some of the products that people like to dab, including myself, are not necessarily extremely high in THC. They're not really concentrates, but they're still dabable. Often products like hash or hashish are much more mild and balanced as far as their chemical profile goes. So they're not something like 80-90% THC. They have a huge diversity of compounds in them. Also, dabbing in general is a form of vaporization, not smoking. So if you do have the correct product type that you feel comfortable using that's maybe a bit lower in THC or you're essentially microdosing other products, this may be a good option for you and allow you to feel the effects rapidly without getting any of those byproducts from smoking. Also on the topic of acidic cannabinoids. So acidic cannabinoids like CBDA and THCA have shown a lot of promise in helping with chronic nausea and vomiting, as well as helping with inflammation. One great way to extract the acidic cannabinoids is by making a tea with fresh cannabis flour. Using this extraction method, you will get the acidic compounds and you'll get the non-acidic compounds like THC and CBD at much lower doses. Water boils at around 212 degrees Fahrenheit, while the activation or the decarboxylation of your cannabis flower happens around 225 to 250 degrees Fahrenheit. So just make sure your water is staying at around 200 degrees and you should be all good for making your cannabis tea to help with your nausea. Yeah, so I I think, again, like we need more research on what can help with nausea and vomiting if we really do want 
um, you know, pregnant people to use less mm -hmm. THC products, we need to at least give some education, some research into like, what are the alternatives? Is there anything else that works? Right. Does CBG work for some people? I'm not sure mm -hmm. because most people are just using the products that they used prior to pregnancy because they know that that helps with their nausea and vomiting ahead of time. So, I mean, right. this is such a difficult spot to do research in. I mean, also, you can't do a controlled study where you say, hey, group one of pregnant women, you're all going to dose yourselves with THC. And group two, right. you're not going to take any. And then we're going to see how it goes. Like, we cannot do that research. It's, it's not ethical. So yep. that is a huge limitation to research, the fact that we're really counting on people to be honest but then when they are honest we threaten to take their child it's really messed up and it's just perpetuating the issue of people lying to their physician lying to their partner lying to society because it's the only yeah. safe way to get through pregnancy um, in that situation right yeah and i think that cps is i think that's a a really hot topic as well because it's not only state dependent hospital dependent like it is it sometimes it just boils down to the nurse that you have or the social worker that happens to be working that day um i feel like a lot of places in the legal states like the the worst that would happen is that you know cps does a visit to the home and they close the case the case because it is so prominent like they're not spending resources to take babies away. However, I don't know if that's happening in Kansas and other illegal states. I think that, you know, if you're a fly on the wall in somebody's Facebook groups, like moms will share their experience um, of, of that happening. I know that, I think it was in Kansas last year, um, a mom was put in prison while pregnant because she had used cannabis. And I'm just sitting here like, what? Like, we know the detrimental outcomes of maternal stress in pregnancy and we are choosing to put a mom behind bars. Like that, ugh, that is not harm reduction. Imprisoning moms because they're using cannabis is, is how you cause more harm. I, I was going to ask, you know, about, so child protective services, like I've heard everything across the board, whether they test everyone who walks in, whether they test some people, whether they randomly test, you know, I don't know what's happening. I don't know if any of the listeners know what's happening, but like this is somewhere where I would love to be educated on because I think it really does differ depending on where you live, what those local regulations are, what even like the person in charge of the hospital, what their opinion on cannabis is. Mm -hmm. Like I feel like all of these factors and all of these like biases and legal status of the plant in these different places completely changes, um, you know, how they're going to be treated, which, uh, which there's so many other issues specifically pertaining to like pregnancy and access to medicine that it, I really actually, hope they're not. Yeah. That I hope they're not putting a bunch of resources towards this because it, it, it is, um, it is insanity in my opinion. Right. Yeah. I completely agree. And when I, like I said, when I worked at Hopkins, we, it was policy to test every mom. And then when I moved to California, it ended up being just do a Utox on the ones who you suspect, which that lends itself to racial profiling and bias. Even if you're conscious about it, there is still like bias in that. So I don't know which one is worse. And 
I think that, you know, ideally I would like to see like either we stop testing or if it comes up positive, then we, we have a harm reduction talk with moms. We don't, we don't, we don't call CPS. We don't take away their babies. Like we, we do everything that we would with a normal mom, but we say, okay, if you're going to continue to use, then let's do it in a way that, that could reduce harm. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like that should be the approach in a lot of ways in healthcare that it's just, you know, it's not, it's, it's black and white where it really should almost always be gray because we need to take into account people's experience and how their body might be reacting different to the pregnancy compared to a lot of other people. And, you know, mm-hmm. how can we help that person feel less stressed, feel more comfortable and, you know, still be able to talk to their physician? Because I, I just find it really sad that that most you know, pregnant people can't go to their physician and say exactly what's happening because of all these other factors that are happening and they don't feel safe um, bringing up what they're actually Mm -hmm. doing. And that doesn't help the physician learn any better on, you know, gathering data and and helping that person with harm reduction. It's it's the sad status. And I know, like, based on my DMs and just based on people I know in my life, There are a lot of people using cannabis during pregnancy, a lot of people. Um, And so by ignoring the issue, we're really not doing anybody any service and we're not even gathering data. We're just doing nothing except perpetuating Mm -hmm. the issue. Right. And there was um, there's a nurse from Oregon who um, DM'd me one day. She's like, I think she was a NICU nurse or labor and delivery nurse. And she said, like, I would love to bring your education to where I'm at because they, they have gone like kind of completely the other way that like, if mom tests positive, whatever, baby tests positive, whatever, but they know that like, they don't question the mom about her use. And she says like, so many of these moms are dabbing and doing concentrates. And she's like, we, we know that like that, we can't say it's a hundred percent safe. So like she, so that's, that was really interesting that that hospital in Oregon has, they're just like have their blinders on like, okay, everybody's positive for THC, whatever. Yeah. That, that's Which the other side, the other side of the issue. Right. And again, like I can't emphasize this enough. Like I do not think recreational cannabis use is a good idea. Um, when you are pregnant or even breastfeeding, like taking high THC dabs, if you're only doing it, you know, because it, you know, you want to, like, that's not a good idea. Like mm-hmm. if you do have a, a specific condition that you're using it for and nothing else helps and it's causing adverse effects to you and the baby otherwise, that's where we start these conversations. But I think sometimes people do think that cannabis is always safe and it's just a plant and, you know, it's, it's not a pharmaceutical drug, so we just shouldn't worry about it. But I mean, even though some of these studies are biased, like we should pay attention to the data and we should try to acquire more data and see if that, you know, holds up over time. A lot of people were asking me like, oh, you know, what's the dose? Like, what dose do you use? And yeah. That's that's a that's a really, really tough one, Um, because, again, it's the minimum therapeutic dose like and that might Mm -hmm. be a little different for different people. Um, Exactly. But and I I use the term microdosing before, because if you can use a dose small enough where it's helping with your nausea and vomiting, but you don't feel like 
high, like blitzed high, right. like right. that would be the right dose, in my opinion, because you're taking the minimum therapeutic dose and that's going to have the minimum adverse effects in your body to you and that developing fetus uh, because you're exposing it to less and less THC. So I think that's so important yeah. to really lock in that, you know, whether it's an edible, like if you can take like, you know, a quarter of an edible, whether it's like, you know, one or two milligrams mm -hmm. or if you... If you're not sensitive to edibles, maybe that's five or 10 milligrams, whatever, but take the absolute mm -hmm. minimum amount if you are going to use cannabis during pregnancy for medicinal purposes. Yeah, yeah, I 100% agree with that. Um, when I was at a conference last year, there was a physician who spoke about um, that she had recommended suppositories for her patients with H, I don't know if it was HG or just nausea, um, but. And I thought that that was interesting that you're, you know, you are putting those cannabinoids right next to the baby. Um, That's a good point. Like, like, like physically yeah. right next to the baby. Yeah. 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 So, um, and I guess like it, it worked for those women, um, you know, depending on the base of the suppository can enter circulation. Um, it was really funny at, at a cannabis nurses network conference last year, the brand Hello Again, their suppository brand, they were there and they were handing out free samples. So a lot of the girls like were using them. And by the end of the day, so many of them were like in the clouds because they had used the suppository. And there was like 20 milligrams of THC in those. Wow. So. I've never used a suppository. I mean, I, I think of suppositories a lot for like specifically patients that suffer with like pelvic pain or something that's mm -hmm. kind of like below the waist mm -hmm. pain or endometriosis or something like that. Yep. Um, I kind of want to experience it just to know how it's different than other consumption methods. Have you ever tried suppositories? Um, yeah. So it, it all depends on the base because if it's like more of like a water soluble base and water soluble cannabinoids, it'll like easily enter circulation. And we are just launching our own suppositories now just uh, it's just made with like cocoa butter and fico and some uh, uh, terpenes, some targeted terpenes. Um, but they're like we've gotten such good feedback for like pelvic pain and uh, I can't say endometriosis because that's a medical diagnosis, but like pelvic issues. Right. And it's just kind of like slathering a really strong topical like in your hoo ha, so it yeah. can help with like all those issues. And I want to see where that goes, like crossing over to like men and prostate issues, will it help? Will it help with them? And I do have like pediatric patients using high dose cannabinoid suppositories for their cancer. So oh, interesting. Is, yeah. 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 So do, the, do they, can they be used for someone suffering with like IBS or, uh, you know, IBD? Um, or is that like mm -hmm. not recommended because you're putting something in that area and right. it's already a very active area? Just so a lot of people, a lot of people find that like cannabis suppositories help with bowel issues, you know, when inserted rectally, that they can yeah. help like and those CB2 receptors right there can help bring yeah. down that inflammation. So okay, cool. a lot of, and I don't, I don't know if you're on these, we're digressing away from pregnancy. I know, I know. We'll, we'll pages, get back. <laughs> yeah. On these cancer page, pages, like some people are just like straight up like, doing a syringe of, of RSO in, in their bottom. And that's how they're like treating wow. their cancer. And I, I don't have an opinion one way or the other, but that's like what's happening because yeah. these, these patients aren't getting this information from their doctor. So, yeah. 
Well, I'm glad you exist for that. Um, <laughs> I, I had a, another question pertaining to dosing during pregnancy yes. about topicals. You know, a lot of people were like, you know, I, I'm so inflamed. I have, you know, my whole body's like inflamed right now. Can, can I use topicals or is that going to get into my bloodstream? You know, that's that's a question I'm sure you get to. And I mean, I would say, no, it's not going to get into your bloodstream and you should absolutely use it. Um, what would you say about that? Um, I completely agree. Topicals are generally safe. I think there's like one one case I heard where somebody had used um, had used like a cannabis lube and kept testing positive because of the lube that was used in that area as like somebody in the military or something. But um, aside from that, like people generally aren't testing positive. Um, it's not generally going into the bloodstream when used topically. I think that when, um, have you ever heard of the Pachote method? Oh, the belly button. Yeah, please describe yeah. it. Okay, so the Pachote method is uh, this method where you're putting um, CBD or cannabis or maybe some oil or something on your belly button. The published evidence is like non-existent. However, like the anecdotes are just like fascinating. Um, I have had um, which could be like really interesting in pregnancy is that if like moms are having stomach issues, cramping issues, if they're either like rubbing it on their stomach or like just letting it sit in their belly button, is that something that could help? I think that it could possibly, and maybe that would be better than inhaling the THC. Um, and we know CBD is absorbed better at the skin anyways than THC. So maybe that could, that could help. But I've had, um, you know, in kids with autism, which is this whole other podcast, but you know, sometimes yeah. they have taste aversions and don't want to take the CBD. Even kids without autism have taste aversions. So, and um, some so CBD I, tastes like shit. So like fair enough. Right. Right. Like, like the raw, like the healthiest, the best way to take it tastes like ass. It tastes terrible. <laughs> it really does. Yeah. Not as bad as mushrooms. Mushrooms. I, I, Cannot. Oh, the, the cheesy ones. It's like, and I don't like most mushrooms anyway. Like just, I love foraging for them. I love finding them, but I like, I have spontaneously vomited from taking mushrooms and I got to like be careful with them. And yeah, the cheesy, ooh, the cheesy mushrooms. It's like, I have to eat them with like peanut butter or just like choke them down with a chaser or something. Cause they're just they're bad. Right. Right. Yeah. I just looked at a psilocybin cookbook. I was like, we need to have an option for people like me who can just like eat a piece of chocolate and yeah. not, but anyway, so what they, <laughs> what these moms have done is like at nighttime, they'll go and put some of the CBD oil on their kid's belly button. And then they find in the morning that the kids are just like more calm and happier and easy, easier to transition to the next thing. So again, like zero published evidence, but the anecdotes are worth attempting you know I, I agree and especially in the cannabis industry like anecdotes are so important like that is the way that we communicated cannabis for so long is just community <laughs> stories nothing positive was published about cannabis for a really long time so we had to rely on community stories so i'm mm -hmm. always all about you know anecdotal evidence um survey data like i think all of that yes. is so important we cannot ignore it especially from right. people who are willing to dose themselves to figure out if something works or not 
Right. And I think that in my lit review class, so I'm getting a master's of science in medical cannabis therapeutics right now. And in my lit review class a couple semesters ago, like we looked at, you know, the, the gold standard is randomized, double blind, placebo controlled trial. However, yeah. when that is fantastic, when you're looking at pharmaceuticals and you're looking at a single molecule and a single target and a single dose. However, when it comes to cannabis, I don't think that that's the best evidence because you're giving the same dose to every, every person on the trial that does not reflect real world use and real world use. Some people need 20 milligrams. Some people need two, some people need 50 in order to come to that same result of symptom relief. So I think that that's like, that's something really to consider. A hundred percent. Like cannabis is personalized medicine. This is why we almost never across the board recommend the same thing for everyone. And it is a bit of trial and error to find out, you know, what products react well with your body, which what dose reacts well with your body, what consumption method do you prefer? It's mm -hmm. it's and I think that's kind of the beauty of it is you have to kind of experiment a little bit to figure out what works best for you. But then you are inevitably now in charge of your own health and medicine, and you've contributed to your own healing as part of that journey and figuring out what works best for you. And I, I think that's a really yeah. beautiful thing. I wish for some people who struggled with things that needed immediate relief, uh, we could say, you know, across the board here, you know, this this will help for you. But we can make educated mm -hmm educated right. guesses and decisions on on these things as well just based on metabolism and dose and weight and height and these kinds of things mm -hmm. too yep yep exactly yeah and i think that we know we know routes of administration and we know like onset the time of onset and we can make recommendations based on that and we can say start low and go slow you know i had an elderly patient that was hallucinating on six milligrams of thc yeah. So, you know, which is, that's the last population you want hallucinating because of their fall risk. So Yeah. Oh, definitely. That's, yeah. that's a great point. And I mean, just to kind of bring back to topicals a little bit because, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I, I studied topicals for a long time. It's something I, I think it's a great introduction to cannabis and mm -hmm. especially it's for something gateway. like. It's the gateway and even something like cannabis and pregnancy where it's like you might be very afraid of THC, which I think is a good, good way to be if you're, you know, playing on the safe side. But if you do have inflammation or you do have some sort of rash or something like topicals are not going to reach your bloodstream. You have these cannabinoid mm -hmm. receptors right on your skin. That topical can directly act on those receptors and help with so many things. Transdermals, on the other hand, the literal purpose of them is to get into your bloodstream. So just make sure when you're buying a product, a topical is like a cream or a salve or something like that, mm -hmm. whereas a transdermal is like a patch. And if something's in a right. patch form, um, that is something that you should be aware can get into your bloodstream and then can reach a developing fetus, although it is still pretty low levels of THC in that case. Right, right. Um, and I think that, yeah, I think the general rule could be like, if you are feeling high, the baby is getting THC as well. Yes, that is probably a really good generalization there. Um, yeah. I have, I mean, do you have any questions from your audience before I just keep Yeah, so, um, <laughs> yeah, I want to give a, a shout out to my friend Tori Moline, who is a very strong um, HG advocate 
on on all the social medias. So shout out to Tori. Um, and she said, let's talk about like CHS versus HG in pregnancy and how we tell the difference and how we can educate moms on on the difference itself and talking to their providers about it. Wow, that's a great topic. I have legitimately never even thought about mothers experiencing CHS while they're pregnant. CHS stands for cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Um, I think both of us have quite a few videos on this, um, and that's topic for different episodes. But I'd love to hear your opinion on this first because you're more of the like the medical you know field, mm-hmm. and it, I think it's super important. Yeah, um, I think that CHS. I mean, I. I don't have any anecdotal stories firsthand. I know secondhand I've heard of it happening. I would say that like you have to look at the diagnostic criteria that like smoking cannabis makes the vomiting worse and it's relieved by hot bathing. So I think if a pregnant mom is using cannabis and those two shoes kind of fit, then maybe it's CHS and if symptoms relieve themselves, with stopping cannabis, then it could likely be CHS. However, if cannabis makes the vomiting better, then it's likely more along the lines of HG or CVS or something like that. That's a great point. Yeah. So a lot of people who who struggle with CHS, um, the only thing that helps is hot showers or capsaicin, which is like hot pepper uh, cream on their body. And then that like temporarily Mm -hmm. relieves the symptoms. But the similarity is that it's uncontrolled vomiting for both CHS and HG, right? So you're saying, yeah, if, if if the capsaicin cream or hot showers is not helping, like take note of that, um, because that likely is HG. Um, Mm -hmm. And obviously, like if these symptoms really started just when you were pregnant, it can be difficult because a lot of people stop right. smoking when they're pregnant. So it, it, there can be a lot of overlap, but I think like the hot showers thing and then, yeah, does cannabis help or hurt uh, the symptoms of nausea and vomiting? These are super important mm-hmm. things because, but I mean, HG, I know a lot of physicians are educated in, but CHS is getting either overdiagnosed or underdiagnosed like all the time, like like right, physicians right. are either saying everything's CHS or they just don't even they don't even know what CHS is and they've never heard of it. So um, as mm-hmm. like a cannabis user, it's kind of on us to be educated about CHS and to kind of know what these symptoms are so we can be aware of them because vomiting uncontrollably is terrible for you no matter right. what your condition is it's terrible for you i mean right. it can literally degrade like your your throat it can obviously cause stress it can make you lose weight it can make you extremely dehydrated there's there's a lot of adverse effects from continual vomiting yeah yeah definitely and i think that like in pregnancy when everything is all fucked up anyways with hormones and like it's your ACS as well. I think that there's probably like a a pretty good overlap in our Venn diagram of CHS and HG. But I think that, um, it, it has to dial down to does cannabis make it worse or better. Um, and I'm wondering if HG does like, does hot showers help HG? Like, I don't know if that's a thing. If it is like, that's, that's a great question. Tori, if you're listening, if you're on do hot showers help HG, um, but, but yeah, I think that it's, it's whether or not cannabis helps or harms it. And I think if you stop using 
or you use it, but then you don't experience symptoms for a couple of days. I think that that could cause a lot of confusion, which is what caused a lot of confusion outside of pregnancy anyways with CHS. So do you, um, do you give med cards as part of, uh, your, your position at your current job? Yeah. Um, no, we don't, we don't give medical cards because that requires a physician. Um, you know, we can refer out and people who come to us, you know, usually they don't need a medical card because, uh, we have a line of products and patients can usually get what they need from what we have, or we can do a custom formulation. Um, but if patients need like flour, um, you know, we can direct them to the best, the closest source. Yeah. I I was wondering, um, because like, has there been a pregnant, like a pregnant mother who got a medical card before? I know there was a court case that somebody put into Mm -hmm. the comment section that this woman actually won the court case in Arizona because she had, she had been, you know, flagged for like a neglect and abuse of her child for using cannabis mm. products. And she was able to demonstrate that it was not neglect and abuse. And she won that yeah. court case. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, if you got a card right before you got pregnant, can you still go into a dispensary like while you're showing and, and get right. cannabis products? I, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think like legally you could because the bud tenders aren't going to say you're pregnant, I'm not selling to you, right? right? Like that's straight up discrimination. But as far as it's just finding a doctor who will say that, but so many of these doctors that sign the things for the cards, it's like an online over the phone, quick right, conversation. Right, it's not your physician. It's just like it's a random person. Most of the time person. it's not people's, yeah. Uh, yeah, and especially it's it's not the OB. Even though, wouldn't that be awesome? Like if like patients came in, with HG and then their OB was like, okay, I got you. Here's your medical card. Here's this brochure. Let's talk about the safest way to use. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we're probably a decade away from that. Oh, minimum. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm always like super optimistic of where the world's going to be with cannabis. And everyone's like, dude, what strain are you smoking? Because absolutely not. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, I guess I'll let the world humble me. Um, I a question I got asked a bunch was if you know a, a pregnant mom was using cannabis is there a higher chance that that child would have a neurological condition uh would they have a higher chance of autism ADHD something like this and mm-hmm. I mean first the research we don't know I'm going to say that for sure we don't know yeah. um but I see why the connection to autism might be made uh because we know that, you know, children with autism have lower levels of the endocannabinoids that our body makes, right? Lower mm-hmm. levels to that. So maybe the association here is that if the mother had used cannabis during pregnancy and kind of falsely, um, you know, mm-hmm. increased the levels of cannabinoids exposed to that fetus, maybe it made the fetus produce less cannabinoids and that led to autism. That is all speculation. I don't think there's any real science behind that, but I know there's a lot of speculation behind that. Um, and because we don't really know why there's increasing levels of autism, I think that is something they just kind of throw throw at the wall. But um, But people also say that about ADHD and there's, 
I just don't think that the the research can really back that up right now. I'm not sure if you get asked that a lot too, um, but it's something I experience. Right. Yeah, I think that uh, with autism, I think there's zero evidence right now that I've seen linking um, cannabis with autism. Um, I know that there have been attempts to link Tylenol. Like I think there's a class action lawsuit against Tylenol for its link to autism. But uh, from what I've seen in the research, there's nothing to link to link it. Um, yeah. I can see where like the train of thought could go. However, we know that it's it's way more complicated than and that. And you can link like you can find those links to almost anything when you're dealing with the ECS yeah. because it's literally involved in everything. Like yeah. if you really wanted to go like full Charlie day, like always sunny, like, like drawing all those lines and trying to figure out like crazy stuff. Like you could do that. You could present a case for it, mm -hmm. but like it's, the data is not there. We just don't have any evidence for that. So I think a lot of that speculation and a lot of people are like defending themselves in the comments. Cause you know, I asked like, what do you want us to talk about? And everyone's like, well, my child is so smart and my child is, you know, has a normal birth weight and like everything's normal about him. And I'm, I'm like, yeah, I trust you. I, I believe you. Mm -hmm. And I genuinely think that's probably because you weren't vomiting excessively during your pregnancy and you weren't under incredible stress which again i think causes more issues than anything else right. during pregnancy and that we do have a lot of published evidence on is yeah. maternal stress in pregnancy and adverse neonatal outcomes and childhood development like sleep yeah. problems and um premature birth like nicu admission like we are seeing that way more with maternal stress and you know that that definitely makes sense. Yeah. And you just so, brought up Tylenol too, ibuprofen, um, even like ADHD drugs like Adderall. Like these are also things that definitely contribute to the developing fetus brain that are so much less stigmatized than cannabis. So we don't hyper fixate on them as much. But we need to think that a similar proportion of the population is also using these drugs while they're pregnant and that right. and that also could have lasting effects. We don't know though. Yeah. Like like this is we have so few controlled studies on really any drug in pregnancy other than alcohol in pregnancy that we know is absolutely mm -hmm. terrible for a developing fetus. Um that we really can't make a lot of conclusions at all, especially because once that child's growing up, now you have all these other external factors, whether it's their diet, the amount of exercise, air pollution, like all of these things you know, that, like, yeah, 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 all of these things that could contribute um, to whatever, you know, experiences that they're feeling and whatever neurological effects they're feeling. So, you know, contributing yeah. that to just cannabis, we just, we just can't, we can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I 100% completely Agreed. So yeah, so if, of course, like our recommendation is to avoid unless it's medically necessary. And if it's medically necessary, then we use the lowest amount possible. I'm gonna say like for moms like listening and like want that validation, like as a medical professional, like I'm happy to write a letter, have a conversation with a doctor or, you know, a CPS for whatever that's worth. I know that the RN behind my name is worth some but not as much as an md so but is, yeah. is this something that you deal with a lot at your business is this where a lot of um like customers come in and and ask for help or assistance or even just like education on this topic 
I would say this more comes from my social media. Okay. Like social media is much more active on, um, we've had a couple of consultations with pregnant women. It's not, that's not a huge one. We're mostly getting like pediatrics and elderly patients and like chronic illness. We aren't getting a, a whole lot of pregnancy. And honestly, a lot of that might just be like, they don't feel like they can go to anyone about it. Not saying that you are untrustworthy at all. Like Mm -hmm. obviously you are, you, you put yourself on the internet all the time talking about these really sensitive subjects, which again, I have so much respect for you for doing that because it's not easy. We all get hate comments when we talk about this stuff, but, um, it's important to put out there. So at least people know that some medical professionals are open to this conversation instead of just saying, don't talk to me about this. I don't want to lose my license, which right. I, like, I feel like a lot of people are scared about. Yeah. Yeah. Which is that's that's unfounded. You know, the DEA is going after medical licenses for doctors who prescribe opioids. They are not going after licenses because their patients choose to use cannabis. It's not it's not a thing. Good. Yeah. That I've seen anyways. Yeah. I I also got quite a few messages saying, hey, listen, I can't comment on your video because I don't want this to be public, but I used cannabis during pregnancy. I'm fine. My baby's fine. Everything's fine. How can I contribute to research about this? And, you know, this is something... I'm hoping to be involved in with just like survey data in the future. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm starting to work with these different data companies that can um, anonymize all the data. So it, it can be completely anonymous. And I really think we need to gather more data from people that people trust like us, where mm-hmm. we say, hey, we're collecting data on this. It will be anonymous you will be okay. Like your name will never be released. And can you give us some metrics on how much cannabis you used? What trimester did you use cannabis in? How's your child doing today? Like, you know, how old is your child today? Like we need more information from people that mothers can trust, which is so important. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with that. That would be awesome. I don't know if you know of anyone like on the West Coast doing cannabis and pregnancy research, but I, I don't really know anyone anywhere. I don't anymore. know. I, I think that, you know, people ask me all the time, how can I contribute to research? And I don't have a good answer. I know that you can look up on clinicaltrials.gov and look up the studies and maybe contact those study coordinators. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't have an answer. It needs to be done. And I think that there's, there's somebody who commented on something a while back. It was like, I'm in a pregnancy study right now. Uh, because I use cannabis during pregnancy. So I think that there is some research going on. There has to be. There has to be. Or you you really, really hope so. And just to reiterate, nothing on this podcast is medical advice. Um, but I will link a few different studies that I find important um, in the show notes of this episode. But I also want you to take your, your magnifying glass to these studies And you don't need to read, you know, every word and then every study that they cite, but pay attention to things like who funded that research. Was it the National Institute on Drugs of Abuse or was it a similar type of institution? Were the the other studies that they're citing from rats or mice or was it from humans? Was it controlled in any way? Was it published before 2000? Like these are all really, really important things. And then I also want to say one more thing, and it's about Delta-8 THC, HHC, 
any yeah. other yeah. type of synthetic cannabinoid molecule that acts on that CB1 receptor, if if you think this is safer than uh, the natural plant, it is not, um, definitely not. Um, and there often are byproducts from the synthesis of that molecule that we have no idea, no idea what the effects on those byproducts and pregnancy are. So if you are someone who does feel the need to use cannabis during pregnancy and you're doing it in the most you know harm reduction way possible at the lowest dose, don't use synthetic products, don't use Delta 8 products, use the natural plant because we know that there are no, you know, laboratory byproducts of synthesis from the natural plant. And I genuinely believe that the plant is safer than the synthetic products. Yeah. Yeah. I completely 100% agree with like the synthetics. And if people are in illegal states where they have trouble accessing the plant itself and only have access to this crap, then give us a call and like we will help connect some dots. Great. That's that is awesome. Yeah. So stay safe out there. Thank you so much for answering all these questions and being part of this conversation. I think it's um, something that nobody talks about because everyone's afraid to talk about it. But I think it's so, so important to get this information out there. And mm -hmm. I'm sure we're going to do a future episode that we'll come back together and we'll talk about whatever other topics you want to talk about because you're so educated in the medical space and the cannabis space. And it's an important uh, bridge to cross, especially with medical professionals that people trust like nurses. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me on. This is awesome. This is great. I can't hey. wait. To, I can't wait to come out. I know. I was originally like, I'm going to release this in like two weeks, but I think I'm going to release it next week because I have like... 800 messages like where do i find this and i'm like it's not out it's not out yet we're just recording <laughs> it today <laughs> so yeah i want to help people so i want to release this asap and i will let you know when i release it so uh you can share it with your network too but um awesome. and if we get more questions when we publish this we'll just have you back on continue the conversation part two. yeah part right. two sounds good all right let's talk about some takeaways from this episode Cannabis should only be used during pregnancy when the mother feels it is necessary for their health and well-being and should not be used for recreational purposes. Smoking, whether it's cannabis or cigarettes or blunts or whatever it is, has been shown to have adverse effects for mothers and for the baby. So choose less harmful methods of consumption like flower vaping or teas if you are able to. Aim to use the lowest effective dose of THC to get the desired effects and avoid building tolerance to THC if possible so you can limit the amount of THC that you put into your body. Continue to assess the legal risks in talking to friends, healthcare professionals, neighbors, ex-husbands, etc. about this topic because we still are not fully aware of what the legal landscape is. Also, a reminder that this is a brand new podcast, and I wanted to sincerely thank everyone who has listened, shared with a friend, subscribed on YouTube, and left a review on Apple and Spotify. If you have additional questions for me, you can ask them on my Patreon or on the Instagram post that I post for this episode. We'll be back next week, but until then, mad love and keep on supplementing your ECS. <laughs>